Before we begin this episode, just a trigger warning. The content within this podcast discusses themes of pedophilia and sexual assault. Help is always available. And if you need to speak with someone today, call Lifeline Australia on 13 11 14. You've reached the Entertainment Hotline, a chatter podcast. Listen as celebs dial in to chat with Anita Annabelle. Chatter.com.au and Media Week's Head of Entertainment. Dial 1 for movie stars. Dial 2 for streaming stars. Dial 3 for TV stars. Dial 4 for music stars. Or press 0 to speak with the star of the show herself, Anita. Hi, I'm Madeline West and I am on Media Week today talking about my brand new one-woman show, The Very Last List of Vivian Walker, where I play not one, two, but five characters and about my new podcast with Gary Jubelin, Predatory, now available on Apple. Hello and welcome back to the Entertainment Hotline. I am your host, Anita Annabelle. Oh my goodness. Today's guest, Madeline West, is best known for her portrayal on Dion Neighbours, but guys, she is so much more. Only an hour before she dialed into the hotline, Madeline stood at Parliament House as a voice for victims and survivors of child exploitation. Oh my God, not only is she an advocate, but she's a victim herself. And honestly, she spoke with grace and candor about her experience with me, and I could not be any more grateful. Madeline is also performing a one-woman show, a live musical and theatrical performance of Megan Albany's acclaimed The Very Last List of Vivian Walker. On top of this, if you can even imagine there's any more, she also has a podcast called Predatory about monsters who hide in plain sight alongside former police detective Gary Jubelin. Believe me when I say this, you will be inspired from the very first second. Here's Madeline West. I was able to speak from a position as a victim and a mother and an advocate and express my real-life experience working with law enforcement, the failings of the judiciary, and as a mother, just how ignorant we are in relation to online predation and how close the threat of sexual exploitation and abuse of children really is. We're so locked into this mindset that it happens somewhere else in another country or that it's a stranger. And the reality is nine times out of ten, it's someone we know who we work welcomed into our own home that is um, taking advantage of our children and being able to speak to the long-term damage and the social cost of predation because I think it's that we still live within a, a mindset which contributes to the silence of victims that somehow we're just going to bounce back. It's going to be okay. We'll get over it. Couldn't be further from the truth. And there's a social cost because the, the majority of victims it will manifest at some point in their life, whether it's by going into crime, drug abuse, alcohol addiction, unsafe sexual practices, inability to hold down a job, inability to hold down a relationship, that has a social cost. And the longer we ignore it, as we love true crime here in Australia, like most Mm. people do around the world, we have a crime with one of the highest ratios of victims and the lowest rates of prosecutions, and we continue to pretend it's not there. So I've got to say my piece. And now I'm breathing. <laughs> Congratulations. I cannot believe you just did that and then you're now talking to me. That is just shows what strength and courage you have as a person. That's just unbelievable. Um, 
I think strength, I'd like to think that I'm attaining strength, but necessity is the mother of invention, that mm. where we need speak out that's the only way we can possibly create change and until we speak out then our law enforcement bodies and our judiciary and our government aren't going to listen if we continue to pretend as a society that this is not an issue then those at the top aren't going to pick it up and run with it and make the necessary changes that need to be made and so we have an obligation a social obligation to protect our most vulnerable citizens and that's our kids what, what's the outcome going to be of today then, from the process from today? Well, the recommendations will be tabled before Parliament and hopefully, it, from my perspective, we'll see some immediate um, amendments to legal provisions around um, MARs, which are mutual assistance requests between our policing bodies and social media platforms to harvest information, to locate the URLs and IDs of people who are suspected predators and report it immediately so that things can be done immediately. Um, we'll enforce, enshrine in law, more responsibilities for social media apps and um, platforms so they're more accountable for what goes on within their play spaces, their mm. social outlets at the moment they're getting away with a lot scot-free and there's a lot of unregulated offshoots of for example something as innocent as, as roblox has unregulated chat rooms where avatars are asked to have sex and you can see them having sex and roblox is targeted at seven to nine year olds so and I've experienced that myself. I play with my kids to better understand what they're doing and I went into a chat room and was ordered to perform sexual acts and when I wasn't I was roundly aggressively abused by other players and for little kids their avatars are an extension of themselves mm. so we know the horrific um, intergenerational consequences of abuse but online abuse is just as prevalent if not more so and for a little kids seeing their avatar abused that's them being abused and they can't unsee what they've seen. Um, and finally, I've said, suggested that we need to give more powers to our law enforcement agencies and more funding to create pre-reporting facilities. A lot of people, their first experience of disclosing sexual abuse or concerns around online predation will go to a, a police station and speak to an officer on a desk who might, who isn't a psychologist, mm. who's familiar with how damaging and the amount of trauma that's involved in these disclosures, the average period of time before someone feels capable of reporting what happened to them is 33 years. So that's a lifetime of shame, embarrassment, of, of self-damaging behaviours that they have to speak to. And if you're speaking to a young constable who just sees this as the report of another crime, they might inadvertently dissuade someone from reporting on a perpetrator mm. and they and we know statistically for every 1,000 people that are sexually abused, only 100 will actually come forward and report it. And of that, 80% will withdraw before it gets to court. And of that tiny fraction, only 6% achieve a conviction because it's just too harrowing. And the details they're being asked to recall are, are things that happened in their childhood that they willfully buried for years and years and years. And many withdraw because they look at the punishments that are being handed down. And here in Australia, compared to, say, the US or Canada, where online predation attracts a 10-year jail sentence, we 
we deliver a slap on the wrist. Mm. So people say, why would I go through all this heartache for nothing? So, so much needs to change and um, I'm hoping that the more we speak to it and this opportunity to speak before Parliament was a big step forward. That whole thing about putting yourself out there and, and going to the police and saying this is what happened to me and then to not be heard or to go through that process of like a trial, for instance, like you, you're reliving that constantly and constantly and constantly, like no wonder nobody wants to put themselves forward. That's why we need a support or like a reporting body that people can go to that is manned by counsellors, therapists, medical professionals, specialists in the field who know how to handle trauma so that whoever is disclosing, disclosing feels supported and comfortable and therefore the responsibility is on, then on that body. It's mandatory to report to the Sexual Offences Criminal Investigation Team that is relevant for that area. So it just means that the capture of, 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 it sounds capture of victims, it's an odd phrase, but the capture rate of reports actually gets to where it needs to go mm. and is succinctly and effectively. And then we need to address the, the punishments that are handed down because they are absolutely abysmal. And is this also going to flow on into adult assault as well? It does have some manifestation. The statistics aren't as high as people suggest, but it definitely will translate where if you don't know any better as a child that this is how you are taught, this is what's really difficult to explain, that when time and time again you are exposed to behaviour that are couched in the framework that either it's your fault, you're to blame, you wanted it and this is normal, that becomes a child's objective reality. That is how they see the world. That is how they see loving, intimate sexual relationships mm. that about a huge status imbalance, about pain, about um, not being listened to and being invisible. So they, there is a, certainly an opportunity there for the, them to go on and perpetuate the crimes themselves. I actually read something that you said in Stella, which I'd love to read out because it really resonated with me. Um, I actually was a survivor of sexual assault um, and it happened very recently, um, but I really, really resonated with what you actually said. So you said, for every sexually abused person, what has happened to them will manifest in their life in some self-destructive behaviour. They are never, ever to blame. What happened to them is a cross to bear. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? I just want to say first and foremost, Anita, that I'm so sorry for that. Thank you. That you are not alone, that it happens far more frequently than we are willing to acknowledge as a society, mm. but we cannot afford to ignore it. Um, yeah. It's a life sentence. Yeah. It's a life sentence. We are that very act makes us feel like we are not worth being heard, that our all the power we project into the world and all the good we do, that bad things happen to good people and that the world is not a safe place. And so we actively, as, I, as you read out, it will manifest in your life in some way because when that happens, you're, I call it looking through a trauma lens. The way you see the world is not a place of opportunity and love and where your ambitions will be listened to and embraced and nurtured. It becomes a place that is dark. Mm. 
that is out to hurt you. And part of your mentality becomes, well, I'm going to hurt people before they can hurt me. Mm-hmm. So that, and you do things that validate how little you see yourself, how little you value yourself. Because yeah. the world has told you by that selfish person's act that you aren't worth anything. And you are. We all are. We all have a born right to justice. And God damn it, I will use my story to ensure that other people like yourself can stand up and know that they are represented and know that they are heard and know that they are not alone. What happened to you and what has happened to thousands, millions of people out there happened to them. It doesn't define them. They did not consent to it. It didn't matter what they were wearing, how much they were drinking, who they were out with, what their history is, what their behaviours were. Consent is such a fluid term in age at the end of the day if someone else has forced their desires their wants their needs their abhorrent and twisted urges on you that has nothing to do with you and it's a cross that you and many have been made to bear and the minute you stand up and identify and say this happened to me but it's not all i am and i'm not to blame that cross falls off yeah it's a manifestation of precisely what we're talking about that when I disclosed, I didn't realise that I would be on the front pages of all the newspapers and I walked into Melbourne Airport because I was flying up to Sydney to host the project and I saw my image on the paper and despite all the force with which I have approached this and the work I have done for years, I immediately felt ashamed and I saw people looking at me and immediately thought, oh, they're going to think I'm dirty, they're going to think I'm broken, that I'm somehow deficit. And then I had to remind myself, I'm here, I'm a mum, I'm on my way to work, I'm being functional. Again, mm. happened to you, you did not do it. It has nothing to do with you beyond how you use it. And I'm not going to hide it anymore. I'm not ashamed of it. It's giving me an opportunity to speak to people like yourself. It's giving me an opportunity to put my finger on the pulse of public sentiment. And the court of popular opinion feels that our justice system has failed us. Mm-hmm. The society at, last, at large has betrayed us. So we have to speak out. We have to have these awkward conversations because once we start having these conversations, we remove the stigma. When we remove the stigma, more victims feel comfortable to come forward. And when they come forward, our policing agencies, our judiciary and our government have to go, whoa, There's a lot of people coming forward. We need to do something about this and then we can tackle the problem. Mm -hmm. Then we can see change. Then we can get these bastards behind bars with sentences that they deserve and that's going to deter others from following in their footsteps. You know, it's so interesting when you're saying getting the bastards behind bars. I remember actually reporting what happened to me and so I had this shame of not wanting to report or not wanting to this person was of a foreign nationality and I remember the, the I had the best detectives, Maroubra Police Station, the best detectives, and they actually said to me, you know, we could get him kicked out of the country and do you know what I did? Oh no no I don't want to ruin his life over over one thing that he did when he was drunk. I didn't want to ruin his life. And yet a year later this literally happened 25th of January 2022 and a year later I'm 
still suffering the consequences on top of trauma that's happened when I was a kid and you're sitting there going, I don't want him to be deported. I don't want him to go to jail. I don't want to go through the process of three years of my life putting this through court. I think the way I would recommend approaching it is forgive yourself in that we all reach a point where the noise around what happened to us becomes so loud that we have to do something. Mm. And if you're not at that point right now, that's okay. Mm -hmm. You will reach that point in your own time. But the discomfort you feel around, I don't want to ruin his life, has to boil down to the realisation that if he's done it once, he'll do it again and again and again and again. And this is what blows everyone's mind the creditors, if they're not called up on it, think it's okay and it's normal mm. and acceptable. So it's part of teaching not just the, the predators themselves but society at large that this is not okay and it never was okay and never will be okay. And I understand that feeling of shame and concern for other people. I've just joined forces with the Grace Tame Foundation and Fighters Against Child Abuse to mm. amend laws around superannuation because currently uh, perpetrators can hide their assets in their super and victim-seeking compensation can't touch their super. So that's a loophole in federal law. The issue is as soon as someone is contacted or brought into a police station to discuss a report of abuse against them, they can immediately assign all of their assets, their houses, their artwork, everything they have into their super and it can't be touched. Now, what that means is that victims of the crime have to fund their own court cases, their own ongoing rehabilitation and therapy if they're seeking it, and just their day-to-day -day life. And as I mentioned earlier, a lot of people who've had serious serious abuse occur to them, whether it's one instance or a lifetime, are unable to work or are dysfunctional or will have mental health issues. So the weight for that person's selfish action is borne by the victim and the taxpayer because where you can't access the, pre the pedophiles or the predators or the, the sexual assaulters, the offenders' funds to subsidise your compensation claim, you have to go to a, a Victims of Crime Tribunal mm. to receive funding from the taxpayer. So you and I are paying for this person who will probably get a sweet nothing prison sentence if they get in there at all and exactly. then they've got, and they've got their super to live happy, happily ever after. Why the hell does the system allow this? And so this is what we're trying to change. So... I, I understand because some people have said to me, oh, but it's not fair for, for that pedophile's wife and kids to miss out. And I think, well, maybe that's a deterrent because hmm. at the moment they've got nothing. They're not getting punished. They're not getting pulled up. They're not getting reported on. Maybe next time they have a little urge or they consider doing, getting too drunk and doing what I'm so sorry happened to you or touching a child or getting online and downloading horrific graphic imagery of children being abused, they'll think, if I'm caught, everything I have will disappear and that means that my wife and children will have nothing for the future. Maybe that will be a deterrent because that's what we need, deterrence. We, de detection is almost impossible. Like you said, 
in your case, the offender, was a lovely guy, everyone's friend from another country. You don't mm. want to but that's what everyone thinks about every offender. They're impossible to detect. We can't read their minds, but we can deflect them. And that requires us as a society to change our approach and change our thinking and start demanding justice. When it comes to children, who, how often do they find the words to say, this is what happened to me? Or how do they know that what happened to them is not right? I know that there's probably a feeling um, as, a, as, as a child of trauma myself in a different sense uh, you always knew that something wasn't right, but you always did take that blame on yourself. For, so for you who went through that experience, and thank you for being so candid this morning, for you who went through that experience, how did you know that this is something that just wasn't right? All my instincts were screaming from the very beginning that it wasn't right. And for me, it started when I was five and I did disclose it and there can be various complicating factors in these situations, but frequently we're ingrained to just ignore it and pretend it's not there. And the recommendation is to say, well, just stay away. If a predator has their sights set on a child, they're going to access them. Their patient is called grooming for a reason. Mm. They not just the child, but everyone around them. And in my experience now as uh, an online educator and facilitator for um predation on social media, the frequent feedback we hear, and also with my experience as a victim's advocate, is that it's when a child has sex ed at school or yeah. enters the conversation in the schoolyard about what bullying looks like, what abuse looks like, that they have their light bulb moment and go, hang on, that's happening to me. And it's been couched in terms of, well, that's normal. It's far from normal. And that's often where frequent disclosures happen or it will happen the next stage is when people have children themselves and the real danger is brought home to them. And sadly, heartbreakingly, a huge proportion of disclosures happen when people are on their deathbed. And they'll say, this happened to me and I wish I'd said something because I've carried that precise cross that we're discussing my whole life. And often then children of abuse victims will say we knew there was something wrong but we didn't know what. If only we'd known. If only we'd known because it manifests in so many damaging ways. Yeah. And the statistics as they stand are that 11% of women will experience childhood sexual abuse. This is in Australia, 5% men. But that only reflects reported cases. And as I said earlier, 1 in 10 report. But of that number, only 6% get a conviction. And in Victoria alone, half of all sexual offence crimes will be appealed and half of those are successful appeals. So we're talking an almost laughably small percentage of convictions. And even worse, oh, I hate even talking about this, um, it's been known that members of the judiciary will actually request reporting prosecutors to remove images or descriptions of images pertaining to exploitation and child abuse from the dossier because it's too confronting, too graphic. I don't want to look at that. So, for example, and this is this is quite extreme, but I'm going to share it because why not? Um, there is a particular offence called a Category 4 offence and it relates to penetration. So a recent case that went before a judge 
describe the images because the judge didn't want to see the images, described the images as uh, prepubescent child penetration. What that image depicted was a six-month-old baby being penetrated by an adult male penis and ejaculated on. Now, that's horrible, but the more we don't talk about it, the easier it is for predators to hide and say, well, that's prejudicial to my case. That is someone's child. That's a little baby that it happened to. Now, just because you didn't physically commit the act, you looked for that image. You downloaded it onto your hard drive. The act is indefensible and everyone surrounded by it should be open to prosecution and real prosecution, not a bloody slap on the wrist. Because the fact that someone's downloading is, is what gives people an allowance to do it in the first place. Who is downloading this? Is this is a, is this what we call a pedophile ring? Is this something that where are they getting these images from? They're getting it from the dark web, and increasingly, the opportunity to create or, or tour from end-to-end encryption. Um, there's online streaming services that are available. That if you dig far enough, you can get into it. And increasingly, the most common place where grooming exploitation of children and the distribution of images of children being exploited is on social media. Oh, my God. Platforms. I'm talking about um, uh, Snapchat, Instagram, Facebook. This is where it's happening. This is where pedophiles go in, disguise themselves because there is so little communication between police and social media outlets. They disguise themselves as a 14-year-old or a 12-year-old. They start chatting to a kid online like on a game like Roblox, for example, um, it's they can dress themselves up as another kid from their school and that's as simple as, and I don't want, want to promote how this is done, they just have to take snapshot and image of another kid's Instagram and set up a profile with the same name with maybe an underscore or a dot to create a point of difference. They contact that student and say, hey, this is me, this is a picture of me, start having a conversation with them. If that child's parents have not gone into the location settings on Snapchat, for example, and put it on ghost mode, Mm. these friends only, that Snapchat account is an open forum and any predator, so for example, this predator I'm talking about, talking to a 14-year-old on Roblox, says, let's go over to Snapchat so we can talk when we're not gaming. Kid goes, sure, why not? I know who you are. You go to my school. They go onto Snapchat. They start talking. One day the kid goes, oh, I'm home alone because mum and dad have gone out. That pedophile then knows where that child is within 45 centimetres of their actual location whenever they use the device. And I'm not just talking about Snapchat. Whenever they actively have their phone on, that person can see where they are. There was a case just like this in the Northern Rivers last year. The pedophile rocked up on his doorstep within 15 minutes. Oh, my gosh. Now, that doesn't scare the bejesus out of people and go, we need to start rethinking the paradigm, then I don't know what will. What age do you think kids should be on social media then? Look, um, I would say as close to 13 as possible. That's generally the age that is, is, I'm going to give you another scary fact. Most kids lie about their age to get onto social media. Now, long term, this can have big impacts because it's lying. It's actually, it's not illegal, but it's discouraged. But if a child lies about their age on the platform, 
there are employers now who there are software programs that allow employers to trawl a person's and applicants and interviewees online history to determine if there's ever been any cases of fraud lying etc etc if there's a discrepancy between the age on their cv and the age that they put on a snapchat account that's lying that's enough that's enough to make someone not employ you so kids constantly need to update their profiles and parents need to make sure that they do it so they're not lying but we all got up in arms about the Optus hack and the Medibank hack. We're talking about 100 to 200 points of data being made openly available and there's a lot of compensation cases running and rightly so because we all felt exposed by that. Your average child, there's 175,000 kids sign up to a so social media platform every day. And we're talking about kids under 12. Mm. By the time your average child is 13, there are 72 point, there are 72 million data points available on them. And most of it comes from parents on social media doing hashtag first day of school. Oh, that's, yeah. So and putting their I, uniform in, the photos. Yeah. Hey, happy birthday, darling. There's a cake with a Barbie on it and five candles. So I know today is your fifth birthday. I know how old you are. I know the colour of your eyes, I know the colour of your hair. People say, but I've only got a private account. Nine out of ten pedophiles are people you know. So they're in your private account already. Now think of it this way. We warn our kids about stranger danger. Mm. If your kid is, is confronted at the school gate by someone saying, hi, darling, um, I need, oh, your mummy has said that I need to take her home from school. A child is indoctrinated to say, you're a stranger, I don't want to talk to you. That person comes up and goes, hi, Hayley, um, mum's had to take Harvey Snickers to the vet, so she said that I can pick you up and take you to Pony Club. And the kid goes, but I don't know you. And you go, yeah, I was at your birthday party. Remember when you turned five with the pink cake and the Barbie on top? And rem look, remember I was with you last weekend when you were rising, riding Smiggles, your horse. Remember when you went skiing? We all went skiing together and you wore that amazing pink ski suit. Suddenly a stranger is a friend and a child will get in the car. This is terrifying. Yeah, and we're doing it to ourselves. That's what's so terrifying. We're doing it to ourselves. Technology is terrifying. It is up with it because we have really really weak legislative provisions. We have an obligation to get educated, to get in the gameplay with our kids so we understand exactly what we're doing. And the solution, like you said earlier, at what age is appropriate for kids to be on social media, the solution is not to withdraw devices because... Mm. We live in a digital age. It's necessary to kids. It's inescapable. And shelter. And it's used in schools openly. So they've got school at like Kids are smart. There are cases of kids who've had all their devices removed who are Snapchatting with their friends on Siri. <laughs> they figure out how to do it. But that is not the solution. Education is key. And frankly, kids are more scared of losing their devices than they are of the consequences of online predation. So that's just going to compound their silence and make the problem even worse. I can't believe I can't believe my, my mum will be listening to this and she'll be horrified that I'm t retelling this story. But when I was 12 years old, so I'm 36, when I was 12 years old, I met somebody online. I would say he was about 18 or 19 and now looking back I'm not I don't even know why I'm smiling because this is horrifying now looking back I gave that man my address and he wrote a letter to me and sent it to my house and I actually am so horrified that even back then and that was the 
that was like the beginning of, you remember ICQ and MSN Messenger and all of that. And for me to not, I was 12 years old, to not have that actual, not my fault, obviously, but for me to not have that knowledge and that understanding. And that was how the internet was used back then. It wasn't even, you know, that everyone didn't have internet back then. I can only imagine what kids are doing now. I, I mean, I can't actually. And the biggest concern now is a thing called sextortion, where, like I said earlier, fake profiles are set up, kids are communicated with, they're talking together for weeks, months, because as I said, predators are really, really patient. They'll take, they will put in the months to groom a child and then they'll say, like they'll send a fake snapshot of another body saying it's theirs and say, send me a picture or a video of you. And so kids, being kids, get, you know, get their gear off and do a little dance in their pyjamas or whatever, the person on the other end of the screen, on the other side of the screen, will then write back and say, if you don't pay me $5,000, I'm going to put that image on all of your internet followers, like all of your Facebook followers, all your Instagram followers. So kid rightfully is terrified, but the last thing they're going to do is tell mum and dad because mum and dad are going to take their phone away. So even worse, they say, if you can't give me money, send me another video and this time take your clothes off. And that image is then sent everywhere. There are kids committing suicide over this. That's how great the threat is. And until we get educated and know what our kids are actually doing, every time we hand them a device, we're giving predators a green light to access them. What kind of education do you think kids need? Because it's all very well and good for us to have the education, but what do you teach a child? You teach them the facts at an age-appropriate level. So I work as a speaker for Safe on Socials. We come into schools and we cater our speeches, our, our talks around the age group. And we also speak to parents and teachers. And the key messages behind that is that we can't keep up with the technology. It's increasing far quicker than our legis legislative provisions are able to cover. So as a community, we need to become aware of the incredible risk and the daily occurrence of online grooming and comprehend that the current punishments don't meet the crime. So that means sitting kids down, explaining what they'll get into trouble for and what they want. So if the kids, a lot of it is fear that if, well, I sent the image and so therefore I'm going to get in trouble. No, 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 no. You report it to the police and they're going to say, well, that's a silly thing to, get, to do. Now don't do it again. And then they'll go to the platform and make sure the image is brought down. Mm. You don't report. It doesn't just go away. It keeps it going. It circulates. So just if mum and dad just go, oh, well, I'm just going to take your phone away, that image is still out there. Everyone is still seeing it. So it's so important for kids to know that they can report and they can also have conversations with mum and dad about consent. And that means if mum and dad want to put a photo of them on Instagram, they have to ask the child's permission mm -hmm. because most kids don't want it. They're, they're, they're better at taking photos of themselves than mum and dad ever are. Yeah. But the information that we're putting up about our kids is to our own detriment and to theirs. So we need to understand we just got to shut it down and shut up. Yeah. We don't need to give the public every detail about our children's lives. In the same way that if you are working, we're talking about low and high risk situations here. If you're working in an office in a city block that sees a large passage of people coming through, don't put up photos of your kids and your dogs and your house because that's information. Same applies to social media. 
you're thinking that, well, I've got a private account, only my friends are seeing it. Well, do you know what your friends are doing in the same way that you say, you utter the words sexual abuse of children and you'll get a strong response. Mm. People say, kill them, castrate them, oh, put them yeah. in their life. You say your best mate Mick has just been accused of sexually abusing his daughters, his nieces or some other children in the neighbourhood. What's the first response going to be? Probably not him. I go to the pub with him every Tuesday. He's a good guy. Because we have this propensity as a society to A, condone silence, but to confuse likability with safety. And because someone's familiar with us, we think that they've got our best interests at heart and those of our children. They don't. Now, I'm not for a moment saying we need to adopt a mindset that is every person who crosses my path or that of my child is a predator. I'm not saying that at all. But what I'm saying is we need to take the time to consider that they might be. So look for red flags. Look for red herrings. If someone is giving your child gifts, why? If someone is insisting on one-on-one time with your child, whether it's a music lesson sequestered away in their house or taking them on soccer camp, why? Mm. If someone is only hanging out with kids, and we know there's always that person, oh, they're so good with kids, look, they're playing with the kids. If they're only playing with kids and not adults, why? In online terms, it's called QPRS, and that's queer and peculiar behaviour. Someone is demonstrating behaviour that suggests that something probably isn't right, then it probably isn't right. We have a really bad habit as a society to ignore our instincts. Like we said earlier, a child will know that something is not quite right. It's only when they're indoctrinated by being told time and time again that this is normal, this is natural, this is something that you want, that they will stop listening to their instincts. We know, we get a gut feeling when something isn't quite right. Mm. Stop insisting that your little girl sits on Uncle Johnny's lap. We know Uncle Johnny's a bit bit eccentric, but if she doesn't want to do it, then don't make her do it. Listen to your kids. Their instincts are probably sharper than ours are and listen to your gut. Yeah, wow. It is very, very scary. Um, But you've got the new podcast, Predatory, and you're using that as as an even more of a platform to share these stories. Why start this now? Because as I said to you earlier, you reach a point where the noise around what happened to you, you're taught to ignore it, mm. sweep it rug. You'll bounce back, you're resilient, you're strong. You reach a point where the noise around it is deafening and you have to do something. And I reached that point five years ago. It's been a long process. I've learned so much and I'm a mum of six. Yeah. And the legacy I leave is not one of silence, that there are so many social mores that we deal with as as the world at large, certain behaviours that we've accepted as somehow just part and parcel with being human. Sadly, pedophilia is one of them, sexual abuse is one of them. We've been indoctrinated to think, well, if it was good enough for me, it's good enough for you, shut up and put up, kids are resilient, put it under the rug, put it in a cabinet, no one wants to talk about that. That's how people once felt about slavery. That's how people once felt about women being seen as chattel, as being possessions. That's what we once felt about women not being allowed to vote. It just takes one person to stand up and say, that's not quite right, for other people to look at it a little bit more closely and recognise that we need to change. 
and that's why what that's what this podcast was born from my own experiences certainly but the more i knew the more i understand how ignorant so many of us are and that's myself included i've learned so much just in the process of the podcast and the specialists that we spoke to universally thanked us for bringing this to light because they're working in a space that no one wants to talk about because it's uncomfortable yeah it is uncomfortable because the idea of a child's image being exploited or their little body being violated for financial gain or for an adult's sexual gratification is uncomfortable. It's abhorrent, but it's happening in numbers that we can't ignore anymore. We have to address it. And so the best way to address it, as I said, is through education and awareness. And so that was my entire plan with the podcast because we know as a society we are obliged to take care of our most vulnerable citizens and that's our kids. And how we do that is often conditioned by our upbringing, our economic reality, the society we live in. And ultimately, it comes down to us. It's a decision we have to make independently. If through this podcast we can provide a roadmap, information, a, a, a guidebook or a checklist, if you, will, if you will, of what to look out for, what the red herrings are, what you can do, how you can report, then maybe we're going to equip parents and carers with the tools they need to keep their kids safe. It's so important. Your six kids, I I was thinking about this while you were talking. I know that you've shared a lot throughout your very, very, very huge career. You've shared so much of your personal life, but I just realised I don't think I've ever seen a picture of your kids. As I don't talk about them and I never, ever, ever show images of them. The decision I made a long time ago, um, along with my former partner, was we had chosen professions that required exposure in the public eye. Our children have not made that choice. They are not our possessions. They are independent people. And until they are of an age to decide that that's the path they want to pursue, I have to be their gatekeeper. I have to keep them safe. And that means never, ever exposing any details about them at all. Mm. But yes, their names have been released, but that's all. Um, it's, I feel, a res- of course, a natural responsibility to keep them safe, but all kids safe. Yeah. They don't have a voice. It's like Blake Lively and Kristen Bell in the US with the PAPS. So they're really, really forward about people taking photos of their kids. And so they'd rather share photos of themselves. You know, Blake Lively was pregnant for the fourth time and she'd rather show photos of herself and her bump knowing that that's what the the photographers are really looking for rather than subject their children. Exactly what you're saying is that they don't have a voice and this is not their decision to be in the public eye. Absolutely. And we have to respect that. I'm learning so much. This is so eye-opening. I just, sorry, it's, it's, it's amazing. I mean, sharing your experience, you said before that you, there's like this element of shame in sharing your experience, particularly because so many people know who you are. Do you really feel like it has actually changed what people perceive of you? I actually think it's going to be in a very positive light. I... I hope it just demonstrates my humanity, that 
that the, the choices we make in life, it's very easy to judge people from a distance, but we, when we better understand the forces that have compelled them to go in the direction they have, mm. that's a very powerful thing. And also I hope it inspires survivors to come forward because from an outside view, I know how difficult my struggle has been. I know the damage it's done to, to me, um, at times people around me, I'm acutely aware of that. But objectively, if you apply an object, objective test, I would come across a strong woman who's successful with six beautiful, healthy children. And I just hope that that demonstrates that because this happened to you, it doesn't have to be the end of you. That mm. you can step outside of it and identify it for what it is and tell it that you have no power over me. And first and foremost, that for me meant stop hiding it, make it visible. It doesn't have to define who I am, but it is part of who I am. It's part of what forged me to do what I do. I think the biggest um, consequence of my experience was this almost obsessive perfectionism. Mm -hmm. Right, I have to be perfect and punishing myself where I wasn't perfect. And I can let that go now and, and acknowledge that my flaws are flaws is a bad word idiosyncrasies is better <laughs> that, that's unique and special and unlike anyone else on the planet and if i can help other victims and i know some people resist being called victims i still consider myself a victim because the process is long and arduous and i don't for me the word survivor is so powerful but it suggests that there's wounds that have healed but you've been through something and you're on the other side. For me, my wounds are still completely open. Um, and so until I feel like they're closed, I'll call myself a victim. But if I can just remind other victims that, you know, you're not alone and you can rise above it and there is a bright future there ahead of you, but you just have to stare down that trauma. You have to stare down that monster. How you do it is up to you, whether it's through therapy or just disclosing it to someone mm. and relating what happened and getting it off your chest and knowing that you will be held, that you won't be judged for it, that our harshest judge is generally ourselves, that you can move forward and you're allowed to feel all the things you feel. You're allowed to feel all those big feelings. Stop denying them, letting them out because they're not doing you any favours that that wound needs to be opened, it needs to be cleaned out if it's ever going to heal. And then you look back on it and go, that happened to me, but it's not who I am. There's more for me than this. Oh. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> this, is, um, this is amazing, honestly. This is amazing. Um, Stop apologising, Anita. Uh, I know. <laughs> Stop apologising. Working through that with my therapist at the moment, actually. <laughs> all do. We apologise yeah every right to stand on this world and walk this world on two strong feet and and accept and demand that it supports us and loves us and embraces us and showing us the care and consideration that it didn't when we needed it most it's so wild that you said the survivor victim um comparison I literally was writing your your questions before and do you know I wrote victim and then I was like, oh, no, it's not victim, it's survivor because that's what I was told after I was abused. Yeah. So I was like, oh, I've got to change that lingo. I've got to change that because I'm a survivor. 
I'm a survivor and that's something that the the sexual assault counsellors who I absolutely adore and I got was very lucky with the ones that I have. But I and they actually said to me, one of them said to me, if you don't want to use the term survivor, you don't have to. But there was like a, a couple of them who were like, you are a survivor, Anita, you are a survivor. And I'm like, how am I, survive- how am I a survivor when I am still going through this and I can't even see out the other side? And I trust that I will be just by acknowledging that I'm a victim, I'm on the road to being a survivor, but I'm not yet. And so I'm going to own this. I'm going to own where I am at right now because the more I pretend I'm something that I'm not, that's all I've done my whole life is pretend that I'm something I'm not and smile and dress it up and oh, put on the card. Yeah. Starts off. I'm on my knees and I don't want anyone else to go through this or if they are, I want to make sure that they get the justice they deserve. Enough is enough. Do you think that you became an actor because I know you were do- studying law and then you you dropped law to become an actor, be- to become D on, on Neighbours do you think that that's why you became an actor? Do you think it was like a false sense of this is who I am? I think it's, look, I, I definitely think it's a part of it, but it's certainly not the whole story. For me, I started acting when I was five and mm. the was always a safe place. It's the place where dreams could come true, where I could lose myself amongst the lines of a script or the score of a song or step into the skin of any character that was assigned to me and walk in someone else's shoes and see the world through different eyes and tell a story that was far removed from my own. own. So, yes, definitely being able to wear someone else's skin was comforting, but I've come to realise over the years that the acting was in itself a form of therapy. Mm. Because it let me, in a short frame of time, play out all the big emotions and all the pain and all the love and all the excitement and exhilaration and devastation that I felt. And I was able to let my body, my being, my voice be a vehicle for other people's stories. I've always felt that everyone has a story, whether it's that of a sex worker or a a, a drug dealer or just a woman working in a canteen tuck shop. Totally. Everyone has a story that deserves to be told and that includes mine and it includes yours, Anita. So in case in point, um, I'm doing this incredible one-woman show called The Very Last Moon <laughs> Walker, which is a black comedy about dying of cancer, as you do. But <laughs> I play five characters and in that two hours on stage I get to flex every feeling I have about what I've gone through, about cutting away the dead wood and drilling down what it really means to be alive and the legacy that we want to leave. The very last list is a slight, it look, it's almost a play on words because we think automatically, oh, bucket list. It's not about the bucket list. It's not about climbing mountains. It's not about building castles. It's not about saving a million dollars it's about identifying and listing what really matters to you Mm. and ensuring that all those things are satisfied are accomplished are acknowledged before you step off this mortal coil whether it's ensuring the fridge is clean or writing a goodbye letter to your eight-year-old son that these are the things that truly matter and it was has been such therapy for me 
going through this because you can get lost in the shame and the fear and the disappointment and the sense of the problem being so big. When you're staring down the face of death, everything falls into perspective. So this play has been um, my saving grace and so much of my personal experience will be evident on the stage. Um, we've got a show coming up in Sydney on the 4th. I fourth. know, I'm so excited. <laughs> Come along and see it and we'd love to have a chat to people after the show. Um, it really is the, the rawest kind of theatre that you can experience. It's just me and there's, aside from two props, one being a book and one being a napkin, there's no, no set no fancy lighting. There's just me and two incredible musicians, Megan Albany, who wrote the book, and her partner, Mark, who is a musical composer. She's a musician as well. Wow. And so I perform a scene and they write the song that was written for that. They sing the song that was written for that scene. And that's it. So we're harking back to the days when theatre was just about someone appearing and there's no fancy dressing, just appearing and telling a story from their heart and then buggering off. I love that. So going back to that and that's that's what it's all about. I hope people come and see it. Oh, absolutely. Is there costume changes? I must know because you're paying. No, you literally, it's just the book and the napkin and you. What else do you need, to be honest? What else do you need? Exactly. Be about complete transformation. I'm just... You have been so gracious with your time. You are... The biggest inspiration to me, I can't even, even, I can't. I don't even, I'm speechless. I'm never speechless. <laughs> Actually, that's one of the one of the first lines. Is it? First, <laughs> I told my girlfriends, their mouths drop open, dropped open. It's the first time they're speechless. Speechless. There you go, speechless. <laughs> oh, how funny. I mean, it's just what you emanate. I think that there's this is going to speak to so many people. I think that was educational. I think there was just so much in there. And everybody has to go see this one-woman show because you are performing around the country and then you're in the UK and Europe. Yes, we are. So come and see us now. We've got show, so 4th, yeah, 4th of March in Sydney. Then we're at the Adelaide Fringe for a bunch of shows from the 14th. Then we're at the end of March. So. Um, I hope you guys can put the links on the podcast. Oh, my God, absolutely. Oh, my goodness. And then the UK and Europe because you've obviously got a lot of Neighbours fans there. I can't wait to get over there. Yeah. <laughs> I, was, I was beginning my journey with facing off with my monster when the Neighbours finale um, filmed and so I wasn't able to be a part of it. So I can explain now that's why I wasn't there. But I have had so many questions, particularly from the UK, going, where's Dee? Where's, where's Dee? Where's Dee? Did she come back as a twin again or did she fly off a mountain? Like what? <laughs> One good show until we come to the UK, but first and foremost we'll be servicing our incredible Australian audiences here and we hope that the people can come along. Oh, my gosh, absolutely. I do have a really good question. How did you feel about Neighbours ending? Oh, shocked because it's Icon. the one that really recommends Neighbours is that it was the ultimate immersive television experience because they're people you saw every day. Mm. They're closer to you probably in this day and age where we're all quite segregated as much as we think we've got these incredible online communities in person. We're pretty segregated. We don't know who our neighbours are. And yet, we know who Dr. Carl is. Yeah. <laughs> so we're talking about 30 
years of history, of collected history, that it was a safe place where people could go to and everyone loves good neighbours. Oh. So such a loss. And the fact that it's I see what you did there. Yay! I see I- what you did there. <laughs> um I actually have a personal uh, anecdote about neighbours. Takai Honda and I have known each other since we were 18 years old. Stop it. Yeah. Hi, Taco, if you're listening. He's so <laughs> Isn't he gorgeous? Very proud of him when he got on Neighbours. Very, very proud. And honestly, I just, I today has been the best chat, honestly, I have probably had in a very, very long time. You are just the most wonderful human. And thank you for being so candid. Honestly, being so candid, what you've disclosed today is really difficult, but I can tell you right now, there is such, you are going to walk in the light. I know what it feels like to be in the darkness. Yeah. Oh, thank you so much. Thanks for calling the entertainment hotline with Anita Annabelle. You can find us on Instagram at the entertainment underscore hotline pod or visit us at chatter.com.au. The Entertainment Hotline with Anita Annabelle is a proud chatter podcast. 